God, would we, would we listen carefully this morning to your spirit as you speak to us about how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community to create safety, to give victims a voice so that redemption can take place. God, would you work deeply in our hearts today? Would you take the words that are spoken and penetrate deep into our souls that we might be transformed and changed and more deeply serve you effectively in our community? And we ask it in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, as I listened to Shannon's story this morning, I was impacted again by some very key things that um, happened to her. Abuse is about loss. Abuse is about one person needing to have power and control over another. The result of that in all of our lives, in my life included, is loss of self and loss of personhood and a very destructive pattern that eventually destroys if, if an intervention doesn't happen. I think the beautiful thing about Shannon's story is she went to her pastor and he affirmed her. And he helped her and he supported her and he made sure she had a safe place to stay. That was a gift. My story, um, is a little bit different. I was in a, I, <clears throat> first of all, I was, I was raised in a farm in Saskatchewan. Went through a lot of sexual abuse as a little girl. I was an only child, very isolated. And, uh, and as I grew up and became a young woman, I, I was attracted to a man who I found out later was a sexual predator. That happens fairly often. And for 30 years, I was married to this man. And, and I didn't realize it at the time because I didn't know what a normal family looked like. I didn't know what normal sexuality looked like, uh, what the relationship between a husband and wife should look like sexually or, or any other way because my, my home had been very dysfunctional. And... And it wasn't until 1990, after we'd been married almost 30 years, that, that all of the secrets and the deceit and the lies started tumbling out of the closet. My husband was charged with sexual assault of one of her foster daughters. She had reported him a few years after she lived in our home. And that was like a bomb that fell on our family because to everybody on the outside, we looked like the perfect family. We looked like a good family in our neighborhood. We went to church every Sunday. My husband was, uh, and I both served in the church. We looked like a good family. We had, we had five children that were born in six years. So by the, I got married when I was 20, and by the time I was 26, I had five little kids. Uh, that was a steep learning curve because I had grown up as an only child, very isolated. The country school I went to, had three children. I was one of them, and there was another girl and another boy. We were all only children. None of us had siblings. We were all the same age. 
and uh, we were quite a distance from from other schools and so they hired a teacher to teach the three of us and that was my public school experience so uh, there was no baseball teams or or uh, or too much else happened except the academic in, in our school it was a very unique situation not not a, a place for social growth and development and some of those things that are important um, I I had to come through a long journey of coming out of denial because I had really believed we were a good family. And I, I ran daycares and I, and I fostered children out of our home and I wanted, so much wanted our home to be a safe place for these kids. We cared about them. And to find that um, my husband was being charged with sexually assaulting one of our foster daughters was just beyond comprehension for me. My husband went to prison for a short time and, uh, and when he came home we still tried to, to work on things and rebuild our relationship but nothing was based on truth. There were still the old patterns of, of abuse that were going on. There was emotional and verbal abuse, there was sexual abuse, there was, there was uh, psychological abuse and, and I found that my heart was desiring to get healthy. I started reading. Finally, there was literature out about sexual abuse, and I began to understand uh, what it, some of what had happened to me as a little girl, and and uh, began to realize that that as I looked back over the time that this girl had been with us, she was with us for two and a half years. That when she first came, I. I led her to Jesus and there was a transformation in her life and she started doing better in school and there was just some really good stuff happening and all of a sudden she just did, did a total change and went back to lying and stealing and all kinds of behaviors that, that eventually meant she had to leave our home. And so as I began to journal that, I began to realize that, uh, that that's when the abuse had started and that this was, really was real. This wasn't a false accusation that she was making. This was real stuff. But I was one of the few that believed. Our church uh, prayed that he wouldn't go to prison. They felt this was all something that was trumped up. My own kids didn't believe. My parents didn't believe. Uh, it was a very difficult, very difficult time. And I was confused. I was really confused during that time. Um, and then... Uh, as I began to get healthier and started working on myself and, and becoming more aware of, of uh, the, the damage of, of abuse, um, I began to feel more and more through a process of time and, and God was working in my life that he was releasing me to leave my marriage. As, as a believer, that was not part of my vocabulary, not part of my thinking at all. And yet, um, and yet I began to realize how broken I was and how damaged I was and how, how hard it would be for me to stay in that relationship and try and get healthy. And so the, the, the night that, that my husband left, we had, I had given him a couple of weeks to find some place. I was running a big daycare in our home because he'd been to prison, couldn't find work after that. And, and uh, so... So we were dependent on, on my income to, to sustain, so he left. 
And, um, and I said to him, you know, we are two very unhealthy people. And I'm, I'm determined to make my journey and get healthy. And if you will make that journey, maybe we can have a healthy marriage someday. Sadly, he has never made the journey. He's two years older than I am. He's, he's, he's a pathetic, sad man in this, in this uh, present time. And, and no friends, very lonely, very, very isolated. He does go to church, but he's living in denial of a lot of what he did. After we separated, one of my youngest daughter then began to get memories of abuse and she disclosed sexual abuse from her dad from the time she was two till the time she was 12. But again, because he denied it, it was a very hard, long, confusing journey for, for our family. And, uh, and it wasn't until my second daughter disclosed about six years ago, she was in her 40s before she got her memories back. And it was the same thing. She had memories of her dad abusing her while he was changing her diaper. And so he started abusing her at around two till she was about 12. And, and so with that reality, and, and so the girls went and confronted him again, and he did admit to it and has owned it, but he's in and out of denial and, uh, and just a very unhealthy, sad man. Um, and so in my journey, I, I, uh, I was 50 years old when I left my marriage and I had to face what am I going to do with my life? Um, how am I going to support myself? We, we, we had raised all these kids and we certainly were not, not very, very well off financially. And so I, I felt God directing me to go back to school. And so I started training to be an addictions counselor. And, uh, and again, in that first module, we, we studied the alcoholic and drug-affected drug family. And I could see this very sick, codependent woman that I had become. And my kids were textbook in terms of their behavior. And yet there was no alcohol and drugs in our home. And I was, again, so confused. And finally, by the end of the semester, I realized that my husband had had a sexual addiction and was a, and was a sexual predator. And, and that's why our whole family had gotten sick. It, addiction affects the whole family and everybody gets sick. And, and as I began to understand that, that was sort of the final, the final thing that God God used that insight and understanding to, to give me the courage to finally, finally uh, move away from the marriage and, and, uh, and find my path. Um, so that was three years. I studied that. I, I, um, it was a financial struggle because I didn't have any money to, to go to school. And, and God kept saying, Karen, I will make a way for you. And he did. It wasn't an easy way, but it was, it, it was, it was possible. And, and then I got a job and thought, wow, I, I, I did well. I'm, I'm all done my education now. I just get on with my work. And then God began to speak to me at 54 years old about going to seminary. And I thought that was the most ridiculous idea. Why would I do that? Why would I go do a master's program when I was that old? And, uh, 
And so I struggled with that. And finally, I surrendered to what God was persistently nudging me toward and, and started a, a three-year program at, at CTS in Regina, where I was living, and, uh, and, and completed that. And at the end of, of that, in 2001, I, uh, I, I married a man that I'd known for a long time, was a very dear friend, and, and he had also gone through uh, huge, huge uh, struggles in his marriage and, and finally had, had separated and, and divorced. And so after a number of years, we had God brought us together, and we knew that God was calling us together. And it's been 14 years now, and at the end of this month, it'll be 14 years of, of a wonderful marriage. We have worked hard to make it healthy, and, uh, and Chuck has been a real redemptive gift to my life. He has loved me with the heart of Christ, that servant leadership that Ephesians talks about, loving me as Christ loved the church. He has done that well. And uh, I wish he could be here today. He, um, he wanted to come. That was part of the plan. And at the last minute, we had, we had all kinds of things happen that changed that plan. And so, so he decided to stay home and care for things there, but um, he, he is a real gift to my life, and we're so glad to be growing old together. Uh, I turned 70 last summer, and uh, you know, my husband loves old cars and old things, and, and that used to kind of annoy me sometimes, but when I turned 70, I thought, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> we have been dealing with very sensitive information this weekend. We're talking about the effects of abuse and how it can even happen in church. People who are church attenders, people who profess to be Christians can be abusive. And that, that's so hard to understand, isn't it? But you know, I realize as I, as I work in this area, I did complete my, my uh, master's program and have been We've been living in Strathmore for the last nine years. I have an office in the, um, the Hope Covenant Church there. And uh, it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to give back out of my story and back out of my training and impact lives. I deal with a lot of domestic violence and, and abuse issues, uh, lots of broken marriages, lots of, lots of grief and loss. And, and it's, a, it's such a privilege to, I, I feel like I'm living into my destiny. For a long time, it felt like those years and that marriage, first marriage, were so wasted. But you know, I realize as we, as we go through that process of redemption, that nothing is wasted. God doesn't waste any of it. And now I get to give back as a gift to others, hope and encouragement and say, you can do this. Nobody can tell me I'm too old. They're too old to go back to school. That one doesn't fly. And so I can encourage people at all kinds of different levels um, to, uh, to just be obedient to God and to follow, follow their dream, follow their heart. We can dream again. Right, Shannon? It's possible. Redemption is possible. But we heard a story this morning that was very different the story of Tamer. And, excuse me, 
one thing that disturbs me about this story of Tamer is that there's no redemption. I find this really hard to preach on because uh, I love stories of redemption. I love Shannon's story. I love to hear those stories. But when I read about Tamer, I see some gross, gross injustice here. And if we look at the main characters in this story, King David was Tamer's father. And, and she was a full, full sister to Absalom. David had several wives. And uh, had, he had, it talks about 19 sons. Tamer is the only daughter that's mentioned. I don't know if he had more daughters or not, but that's, she's the only one that's mentioned. We know that she was very beautiful. She, we know she was still a virgin. <coughs> and uh, and Ta- uh, Amnon, who was the half-brother, was, was attracted to her. And in that culture, it wouldn't have been appropriate for the two to have been married. And so that was probably part of Amnon's confusion. And, and uh, as he was lusting after his sister, he, uh, he realized that it really wasn't possible for, her to, for them to be married. But if we look at the story of David, he made some really big mistakes, didn't he? David was a, a, a man who, and, and the scriptures tell us, he was a man after God's own heart, but he made some pretty big mistakes. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. When she got pregnant, he had her husband killed to try and cover up. That's pretty big stuff. But you know, David's story is also a story of redemption because when he repented, when he confessed, God extended forgiveness. But there were consequences. It does matter how we live. And that's really the theme of my, my heart this morning. Is it, and, I, and I talk to people in my office all the time. It does matter how we live. Yes, King David was forgiven. And he was, he was redeemed. And yet he made some mistakes that affected so many people. They affected his kids in big ways. And, and David, for some reason, was not sensitive to what was going on in this story. When Amnon was scheming to get his sister alone, get his half-sister alone, get Tamer alone, that should have been a big red flag. David missed it. He did not have a, a protective heart over his daughter. He was trying to please everybody, keep Amnon happy. And, and so he, he missed the red flag there and went along with Amnon's plan. And it turned out to be such a disaster. And then after Tamer was raped and she made it very obvious, she was trying to have a voice. She went out and she, she ripped the virgin garments that she wore proudly before that, uh, that day. She wore those proudly. She was a virgin in Israel. She was the king's daughter. She had a, a great future ahead of her. And all of a sudden, in just a few minutes of Amnon's lust and need to control, she lost her future. And so she was trying to have a voice about that. 
She put ashes on her head, which is a, which is a sign of mourning. She was saying, I just lost my whole future. I just lost my virginity. I lost the things that are so precious to me. And she met her brother. And, and he said right away, he recognized probably what had happened. He read into it. He said, did Amnon rape you? And she said, yes. Now, he should have been outraged and supported her and given her a voice. But that's not what happened. He wanted to sweep it under the rug. He wanted to keep it quiet. He wanted to deal with it in his own way. And so he took her to his home. And that's where Tamar lived. And as far as we know, she lived and died in her brother's house with no voice, no redemption, no future. I have searched through this story to try and find some redemption there, but there isn't any because Absalom and David took her voice away. King David found out about it. As a father, he was outraged. Did he do anything about it? No. He allowed her to go on, live in, live in Absalom's home, not have a voice. Not, he never dealt with Amnon, never even talked to him. Never, never did anything about it. Absalom, he was angry. He was going to get revenge. And we heard how that ended so tragically. He took matters into his own hands. But as far as we know, there was no communication. They all were avoiding the elephant in the room, right? Nobody wanted to talk about it. Absalom and David probably didn't talk about it. They never talked to Amnon. They never gave Tamar a voice. They just kind of tried to keep it a secret, sweep it under the rug, and, and there was no redemption in that. And I want us to remember it matters. It matters what we do with these situations. It matters how we live. We are followers of Christ. And his heart is for redemption, for the most broken, for those who have gone through such tragic situations. <clears throat> his heart is for redemption and to redeem these people. In my story, <clears throat> My pastor did not deal well. I wish I would have had a pastor like Shannon had. But unfortunately, uh, and this was back a few years, in that church they are starting to deal with things differently and better, but um, they, were, they didn't deal with it well. And when my youngest daughter went and disclosed to, to our pastor, again, she wasn't believed. He said he believed her at first, but there, again, was no support, no action no ability to give her what she needed and, and to encourage and, and be there for her and support her in her journey. They actually accused her of having false memories. And, uh, and, and such a tragic thing. To this day, my daughter cannot go through the doors of a church. That's a lot of years. And she literally shakes and trembles if she walks through the doors of a church. She has been spiritually abused in other situations as well. And, uh, and, and she has a heart for God. She prays. She talks to me about God. But, but she can't be part of a spiritual community. And that's such a tragedy. I, I feel so sad about that. And I'm praying and hoping for redemption, full redemption for her someday. 
it matters how we respond to these kind of situations. Um, one, of the, one of the important things is that we know how to respond in ways that are supportive. And that's what this weekend was about. We talked a lot about that, but there's still so much that we need to learn about how to be supportive. And, and I, I spent Friday night and, and Saturday here teaching, but, but you know, there's so much more to that whole thing. And, and so we need to know how to respond as a community. And that's why um, in, in AVA, we, we try to, to help pastors and equip them and church leaders and we, we encourage advocates in every church who are trained, who can point victims to resources, who can, who can walk alongside them and just pray and not re-victimize them. Because I, as a counselor in my office, have heard some heartbreaking stories of how churches and pastors have re-victimized people. I remember one, one lady saying to me she had disclosed to her pastor that her husband was sexually abusing one of their kids, one of their daughters. And, um, and she, she had that conversation with him, went home expecting that he would support her. Sunday morning, she and her children came to the church and he was there with the, <clears throat> with the leadership of the church around him saying she was not welcome to come to the church. And to, that, and to this day, she does not go to church. That's a tragedy, a lovely, lovely lady. And she had to find her own journey, had to find her own resources and support, and she, and she finally did, and, and is living in a fairly healthy way now, but doesn't, know, doesn't walk with Jesus anymore. And uh, <clears throat> that's, that's a tragedy. The, the, whole, the whole experience of abuse is about loss. And we don't want to create more loss for victims. We want to be life-giving. We want to encourage and support. And that's, um, and that's so important. When I was in Regina <clears throat> in school, we had a, a young couple on our leadership team, and I shared this story yesterday. And, and you know, of all the families I've dealt with who have had to deal with abuse in their family, this family did so well with this whole experience. They had three children. The oldest was 16, a 16-year-old boy. They had a 12-year-old girl and a younger boy. And they, they found out that 12-year-old girl was being abused by her older 16-year-old brother. He also had been, been uh, babysitting some kids in the church and had been starting to act out on them as well. And so they did the right thing. They, they took him to the police, they had him charged, they had him removed from their home, and they, they put him in our pastor's home, who, who had three, three boys, and uh, got him into an offender's program, kept their daughter safe, supported and protected her. They only allowed contact with her brother when she felt like she could handle that and she felt safe. Um, and so they, they, they did it as well as anybody I'd ever seen. But that was hard. Can you imagine taking your son and reporting him to the police? But what he was doing was a criminal offense. And sometimes we don't want to face that. We think, well, we'll just 
tell him to be a good boy and not to do it anymore and everything will be okay. We'll just kind of sweep it under the rug and, and we'll be fine. It doesn't work that way. When somebody starts offending sexually and even somebody starting that, that abuses people physically and emotionally, they don't change until they get some help because there's a whole rationalization in their mind about why it's okay for them to do what they're doing. And until that's cracked, until truth can crack that denial and help them to realize that what they're doing is abusive, that they are, are exercising power and control over somebody else, that, that is destructive. It's a hard thing to understand when, when somebody violates sexually. But it's not about sex. And I want you to hear this this morning. It's very hard to understand this. Sex is the weapon. But it's all about having power and control over the victim. And so I have so many people say to me, I cannot get my mind around how somebody can offend against a little child. Well, that's what it's about. Sex is the weapon, but it's all about somebody having power and control over the victim. Why do 20-year-old men rape 80-year-old women? That's not about sex. That's about power and control. Those things happen, as, as, and, and it usually starts with an addiction to pornography, and then it progresses, and as it progresses, they get into very deviant behaviors. And we have, we have people exposing themselves, all kinds of, 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 of um, just unnatural behavior. But they do that to get a greater high. And so it's hard for us to get our minds around this. It feels so evil and so ugly. And in the midst of that, we need to remember there is redemption. God's grace is able to come and heal and redeem, heal the victim, but also heal the perpetrator if they're, if they're, if they're willing. I have a client who, as a little girl, was sexually abused by her dad. And she shared her story with me, and it, it's an amazing story. When she was, I think, 12 or 13, she was walking down the road to school one day with two of her girlfriends. And she finally got the courage to say to them, you know, my dad touches me and I'm not, I'm not comfortable with that. It feels really awful. And the two other girls looked at her and said, our dads are doing that too. And so these three girls had enough courage to go to one of the teachers at the school and report this. All three of these dads were arrested. Now, I, I don't know if the other two dads really admitted what they were doing, but this girl's dad did. He said, yes, I have been doing that. And so he went to prison. He was in a sex offenders program. And when he came out, um, my client, who's his daughter, said to him, so are you fixed? Are you sure you're not going to reoffend? No, nope, I won't reoffend again. I'm all fixed. I won't do this again. And she believed him. And, and then within a year or so, she noticed that her little niece, her sister's daughter, was starting to behave in a very unusual way. And so she went to that little girl and she said, is somebody touching you? 
in a, in, a, in, a, in a way you're uncomfortable with? And she said, yeah, Grandpa is. And so she confronted her dad, and again he went to prison, again he, he got treatment, but she said, this time we don't trust him. And he doesn't trust himself. He's learned enough that he will reoffend if the opportunity's there. And so they don't give him opportunity. They still have some family gatherings where they're all together. It's a bit awkward and a bit messy, but they put parameters. The kids know they don't sit on grandpa's knee. They don't, they don't, um, they don't do certain things. They're never alone with grandpa. And so they've set parameters around. This is not a Christian family, but they have, they have worked through this so that they can still have some sort of a relationship. This gal really loves her dad, but she, she has to protect her own children. This is messy, isn't it? It's really messy. But we have to understand that when these people are broken in this way, they need to have that power and control over others. And there, there isn't necessarily a place, especially with sex offenders, where we can trust that they are fixed. We need to set parameters. And so you probably someday will face having somebody with that kind of a story in your church. You can still love them and walk alongside them. You need to make sure they're getting help. You need to make sure they've got some accountability. And you need to keep your children safe. I was part of a church in Regina where uh, a family reached out to a, a sex offender when he came out of prison. And he had had treatment and they... They assumed that he was okay, and they left him alone with their children one night. And the worst happened. And so we have to be careful. But we do have to, to be able to reach out to them, but with parameters, with boundaries, but with God's redemptive offer of grace and forgiveness. It's there for both the perpetrator and the victim. But our mission in, in AVA is particularly focused on us being accessible and safe and supportive to the victims that come into our, our congregation. And so my, my uh, challenge to you this morning is it matters, it matters how we live. Because how we live daily impacts our families. It impacts our communities. It impacts our world. You were created with plan and purpose. Do you realize that there's nobody in the world now living or ever has lived or ever will live who has your fingerprints or your DNA? God went to a lot of work to make you unique and special. And you were born into this world with plan and purpose. You were not just thrown in here as part of humanity and, oh, well, I'll swim and see what I can do. You're here with plan and purpose. It matters how you live. It matters how you live. King David, it mattered how he lived, and he blew it in a lot of ways. Was there still redemption and forgiveness? Yes, there was. But his life impacted his family, impacted his kingdom, impacted God's work. And so we want to be very intentional and conscious 
about how we live and to be safe people for those who have been abused and are suffering loss. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we leave this place together, as we, as we gather for lunch together, and as we then go off in our respective directions to live life out this week in our community. God, would you help us to be very intentional about being the hands and feet of Jesus. And God, we confess our humanity to you today. We know we're not going to do that perfectly. But God, would you help us to be intentional and thoughtful and reflective about how we live our life because it matters. It matters to you. It matters for eternity. But it matters today in the people and the lives that we touch. So God, would you help us as your people <clears throat> to live well, to finish well, to be an impact and influence on our world for your kingdom and for your redemptive purposes. And we ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.